Hi, and welcome to episode 7 of Cavalier Cast The Civil War in Words, a podcast which will look at everything and anything to do with the War of the Three Kingdoms. When you think English Civil War, you generally think King or Parliament. That was the eternal question at the time, the answer to which could mean life or death. But what if there was a third piece to that jigsaw? A third army? A third choice? If you could choose to band together and fight to protect your local area from the ravages of war, or prevent plundering by the soldiers of either side, could you really hold off the war on your patch? Today I'll be looking at that third force which did in fact exist in the English Civil War, referred to as club men. Later I'll be speaking to Hayden, who's looking further into their activities. We'll talk about their name, motives, aims and also the Battle of Hambledon Hill in 1645, where Parliamentarian General Fairfax sent Lieutenant General Cromwell to put an end to the clubmen of the South West 375 years ago. At that point the war was nearly over and the last major royalist army was on the run. Just a quick note about dates. With the old Julian calendar, the new year actually started on the 25th of March in the 17th century. But in this podcast, I'll refer to years based on our calendar. Back to Clubman. The royalist Edward Hyde called them, quote, the third sort, greater than either of the other, both in fortune and in number. In a parliamentarian pamphlet, quote, this third party hath peeped for many months in many corners. They will have an army without a king, a lord, or a gentleman almost. So first, let's have a look at the beginnings of the clubmen. They came about a lot earlier than 1644 to 45, which is often said, and were not confined to the southwest. In a letter from Sir Thomas Fairfax to his father, who was parliamentarian commander in Yorkshire, we see their beginnings in the north at least as early as January 1643. Sir Thomas's letter to his father reads as follows. These parts grows very impatient of our delay in beating them, the royalists, out at Leeds and Wakefield. For by them, the royalists, all trade and provisions are stopped, so that the people in these clothering towns are not able to subsist, and indeed, so pressing is their wants, as some hath told me, if I would not stir with them, they must rise of necessity themselves. In a thing of so great importance, I thought it fit to acquaint you with it, to desire your lordship's advice before I would undertake it. But if no aid can come to us, then to give us your advice and order what to do, for long this country cannot subsist, and to raise the country to assault the enemy, I would not do it without your lordship's consent, being only commanded to defend the ports from them. I am sure I shall have above six hundred muskets if I summons the country to come in beside the thousand or more with other weapons that would rise with us if your lordship pleased to give me power to join with the readiness of the people. I doubt not but God's assistance to give your lordship a good account of what we do. So humbly desiring your blessing, I will ever be your lordship's most obedient son, Thomas Fairfax. At this point, the Northern Royalists were supreme under the Earl of Newcastle, 
and the Fairfaxes were struggling to keep the parliamentarian flag flying with just a handful of towns holding out in Yorkshire. In March 1643, at the Battle of Seacroft Moor, thousands of clubmen joined Sir Thomas Fairfax's force, which was pursued by the Royalist Lord Goring's cavalry. But due to their lack of experience and martial discipline, the clubmen threw down their guns, some after one shot, others immediately. It was said that the local economy suffered much after that, because so many of the clubmen, taken prisoner by the Royalists, were tradesmen, local leaders and the mainstays of the community. After that, they shored up the Fairfax army again at Adwilton Moor in June 1643. They did not engage the Royalists in that battle, but were kept as reinforcements. In a letter to the Speaker of the House of Commons, Thomas Stockdale wrote of these clubmen in Fairfax's army, quote, Many clubmen followed us who are fit to do execution upon a flying enemy, but unfit for other service, for I am sure they did us none. By late 1643, when only Hull was left as a parliamentarian stronghold, and the Fairfaxes were bottled up inside it, the clubman force was on the wane in Yorkshire. It's worth noting Sir Thomas Fairfax... By 1645, he becomes Commander-in-Chief of Parliament's new model army. As we've seen, he encourages and grooms the Yorkshire clubmen to rise in 1643 and uses them to supplement his own army. But in 1645, we'll see how he deals with their southwest counterparts two and a half years later. To talk further on the clubman, my special guest for today's episode is Hayden, who keeps the flag flying for them this day on his website, Facebook page and Twitter as Clubman1645. Check out his website at www.clubman1645.com. So welcome, Hayden. It's a pleasure to speak to you. So first things first, how long have you been interested in the clubman? That's a that's a that's a good question actually. I was aware of the clubmen because I live in Wimborne, so I was always aware of the clubmen meeting at Babu Rings. Um, but even as a boy, I knew about it. But I actually got interested in the clubmen. You could say, oh, five years ago. It's, it's difficult to look now. I was actually, I was actually doing some research for uh, John Reese's book on the Levelers, and I just thought, you know. Nobody really does the club men in Dorset, really. I mean, people have done the club men, but it's all sort of, um, it's quite nuanced. It's by different sections, different counties, mm. and there's no collective. And I thought, well, you know, I'll try to put something together as a collective, really. And that was my, really, where I got involved with the club men from then on. Uh, and what, what were the club men's aims? Yeah, well, there you go. That's a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever come to the conclusion, you know, were they, did they all have a common, they all had a common interest in yeah. the war stopping as such, you know, that, but each, obviously each county, nobody really, really you know, some say there were, you know, some counties were for parliamentarians, some for, for mm. warlists, and so a lot of it was personal, whoever was garrisoned there, personal grudges, all that sort of thing. But, their per- their aims. Well, you've got the designs and resolutions and in, in their petitions and declarations, you know. So it really is the end of the war, really. 
and, 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 and coming together with both sides to talk. And, and they had a motto, didn't they? Um, if you come to offer plunder or steal our cattle, yeah. be assured yeah. we will bid you battle. Yeah, that's that was yeah, that's a great. I mean, that's the only one we know of, sadly. But I think a lot of it was um, uh, sermons, you know, a lot of it was scripture, and you know, I think that's what was on the banners. But it, it does say they were white banners. Okay. So yeah, so that was the common thing they wore white, I suppose, as a cockade, you know, as um, as their mark a ribbon. Yeah. Um, and obviously, do you specialise in the club and of the southwest more? more source uh well i have visited Worcester in all those areas you know mm. I, I mean i have, I have an interest in hill forts anyway i mean i, I quite like walks I, I do a lot of walks so yeah. i mean that is the added interest but no i went up to shropshire and i looked at the club men there and i looked in hampshire and down into Corn- well, not cornwall into somerset and then i went you know do- so i ventured out into those parts but i know the most about this area where i live in dorset but i, I was intrigued to find out more about the worcester club in all that area as well Yes, yeah. and, and obviously they were all across the country, weren't they? Like, like you've just yeah. said there, Yorkshire as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the Yorkshire stuff's really fascinating because they were sort of more uh, aggressive, you know. I mean, they were sort of, you know, they were quite sort of, um, you know, Bradford and all that sort of stuff. It was much more sort of a, a joint effort, is such. It was more, more violence, I suppose you could say, wasn't it? Mm. The clubmen themselves frequently joined the armies, though, didn't they, as well? Yeah. Um, but in most cases, it was Parliament's army they joined. Yeah, Humphrey Willis you're on about in Somerset, aren't you? And that sort of thing. Yeah, ah, uh, yeah. The sympathies with Fairfax is—is it, is it because he was sort of, you know, a more professional army, was paying his way, they could see the where the war was going, you know, so join up and finish it off quick, sort of thing. I don't know. Cause, I mean, because there's that famous interview where sort of, you know, where where, where Fairfax rides up to Humphrey Willis, and it, that he's still right up to like the you know Bridgewater seats. He's still sort of mm. saying, well, we're not going to join either side or either side, you know. And then, then you know, quite happily he did. So, you know, even up to that point, they were still... Maybe they were just really indecisive. Mm. Uh, Humphrey, <laughs> was Humphrey the leader of the clubman? Yeah, you don't know many leaders, really. I mean, you know the royalist ones, because they all got arrested. <laughs> you know, and they got, all got bad mouth. But they're really sort of like the ones you want to know about, the parliamentarian ones, didn't sort of get much... Bit, not so much published on them so much. You know, it's quite foggy getting the uh, exact description of who the clubmen were in Yorkshire as well. It, it seems that they were encouraged to rise up really by the Fairfaxes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, absorbed into their army just to, to boost their numbers as well. Wasn't it? Against yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, I never, I never too sure if it's actually, you know, are we talking about clubmen or club, you know what I mean? Clubmen could be associated with the army anyway, couldn't they? I mean, hmm. I've, I heard that term associated with the sort of, the, 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 you know, the, the, the untrained soldiers as such, you know, but, uh, so I'm never too sure if that's just a broad term. Because the, the phrase clubman, it, it doesn't, I think people imagine men walking around with clubs. Yeah, you know, I know, that's a terrible description. Yeah, but it, it, the, the club part of it was more than that, wasn't it? It was that band of association, that, that's kind of what yeah, it meant. Yeah, that's, my, that's my idea, it was no form of association, but it still gets used. Um, they walked around with clubs, you know. Um, and what do you think would have happened if the clubmen had, had all united together? Yeah, that would have been fantastic, wouldn't it? But the clubmen, there's not all a lot of literature. You're just reading the declarations all the time. Yeah. It's all up to speculation where it would have gone if they became a third force. Yeah, but it would have been interesting. I think I would have joined the clubmen. I quite like that sort of uh, indecisive, not too sure where you stand, you know, because I think that's sort of how life is really. You, you mentioned Hamilton Hill there, so it's the 375th anniversary this uh, this week, just been, and you made some great video clips of it. Um, yes. But 
T- tell us a little bit more about the battle. Um, that, uh, that was Cromwell no, no, no. sent to disperse the clubmen, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Well, he marched onto Shaftesbury. He, he was he, he was given orders by Fairfax to go and disperse the clubmen. That that is the um, that is the what was on record as such. And he went to Shaftesbury and saw the colours flying from Duncliffe, uh, which is a I think he described it as a place thickly wooded. They march to Duncliffe in, in like Cromwell comes down and talks to Richard Newman and then suddenly they have this chat and everything's fine and they all go home. Right. Which is kind of weird because you sort of think, well, you know, up the road they're at Hamilton Hill then none of them are going home. So, you know, was that a split between the clubmen there and then? I mean, why were they on two different hills for a start? You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's a bit strange because it's all on the same time, on the same day. Yeah. And then he marched and then that went fine and then he went up to Hamilton Hill and then... Well, he sent Gladman up first of all with, uh, I think it was um, a troop of horse, wasn't it, some dragoons, to get through that narrow entrance where he could only get three horses abreast. And I think he was shot upon several times and actually killed two of his um, dragoons and, and some of his horses. Uh, yeah, if I remember rightly, about Hamilton Hill. Mm. And then there's this guy called Mr. Lee, who seemed to be running backwards and forwards with information. On several times, you know, Cromwell would say something and Mr. Lee would run up the hill and oh. have a word with the clubman again, then run back again and they'd have another banter and then Mr. Lee would run back and talk to the clubman again. So, but yeah, and then Desborough gets ordered to go around the back uh, of Hamilton Hill and, and come to the clubman from, from the rear as such. Well, I've, I've actually walked that side and it is the easiest side to walk up. And that, yeah, that was the end of the battle on Hamilton Hill. You know, there's that, there's that account of them all falling down the banks and a bit like around, uh, Ranway Down, I was imagining. Sort of, it's that steep part, you know. Um, yeah, and they all got captured and taken into the uh, Shroton or Shroton Church. I think it's Shroton Church. And they were kept there overnight and then they were taken out and next day and, you know, taken to Sherborne as prisoners. You know, and some were released, you know, and there's that famous quote of Cromwell saying, from the pulpit, if you went in the church, calling them poor and silly creatures, you know. But they have some terrible names against them, the club, and didn't they? Rotten, nauseous, neutrals. Some of the literature, the names they described them as terrible, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're, I mean, the Hamlet and Hill battle was like the most famous, isn't it, with the, with the, yeah. uh, the club, man? Uh, and was that that really was towards the end of the war and towards the end of the clubman really wasn't it? Yeah, Hamilton it was. Hill. I mean, Hampshire happened after. I mean, they went to Hampshire and there's that uh, Loomis Ash and uh, Trundle and all that area. Uh, and in terms of casualties at Hambledon Hill on the clubman's part, um, are we talking between fifteen and sixty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are. I mean, yeah, it right. might be more. I mean, you, 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 the north side of the church is where some of them are buried. There's about 12 of them buried there. Okay. And when you go to Shillingstone, if you go into the church, I mean, this is one of these good things when you go out to these sites. You know, I went into Shillingstone and I looked at the church there and they, 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 um, uh, they rebuilt some of the north side of the church. And when they were rebuilding it, they found some skeletons there buried at the north side. And in the church itself, it says these were probably the casualties that were taken on Hamilton and shot on Hamilton Hill. So, okay. you know, the 12, the 12 um, uh, in Strotton and plus the ones at Shillingstone, you're, you're into sort of 24 then. Um, what, what, what's the link as well with the hill forts and clubmen? I got asked this the other day, actually, and I, they said, well, it's, it's defensive position, but... Huh. Maybe it was just sort of still there in the psyche of these meeting places, you know. I mean, maybe that was that the connection. They still had a connection to it. Or, or, or really, it could also just be a, a significant, well-known point where people could meet, isn't it? Like, as you say, you know, let's meet at um, Hambledon Hill. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily for battle, as you say, just exactly. to meet there, to talk, to um, discuss, you know, 
aims maybe or what's going on in, in the county. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And nobody's done this sort of definitive study on the club, man. I mean, I have. I'm All I'm doing is visiting sites and really looking at local, um, you know, I go into churches and read sort of what people are writing in churches and, you know, because you can find a lot of information going to these places. Thanks, Hayden, for sharing your experience and insights there. So as we heard, the Battle of Hambledon Hill was a decisive end to the Southwest Clubmen, who were perhaps the most documented and most active. But just prior to Hambledon Hill, 1,000 Clubmen of Dorset sent a petition calling for His Majesty and the two Houses of Parliament to continue once again to be restored to the blessing of peace by a happy accommodation of their present differences without further effusion of Christian blood. At that point, the Royalists had lost the Battle of Naseby in June 1645, and then in July, Royalist Lord Goring was defeated at Langport, and the King's cause was almost snuffed out. Fairfax decided that the time was right to disperse the clubmen once and for all, and to eliminate them as a threat. Fairfax, in a letter addressed to his father on the 4th of August 1645, spoke of his intentions for the clubmen on the eve of Hambledon Hill. We have taken 13 or 14 of their chief leaders. Lieutenant Cromwell is gone out with some horse to hinder the clubmen's meeting, which I hear they have appointed to command and demand their leader's return. We must not neglect their business, for their violence is probable, and to lead them to some foolish attempt, which I hope may make them repent their errors. The clubmen had cause to be on the alert so often, due to the raucous nature of the Royalist Army in the southwest, under the command of the infamous Lord Goring, who Hayden told me was renowned enough to still be spoken about by the time of the First World War. The clubmen even met on a hill fort to present a petition to the Prince of Wales about Goring's men, and eventually they lost patience and demanded action from the Royalist commander Sir Lewis Dive. I touched on the petitioning of Sir Lewis Dive with Hayden told me how the clubman petitioned Lewis to do something about Lord Goring and his forces and in the end Sir Lewis gave the clubman arms and quote furniture which suggests saddles and equipment for horses. They then confronted some of Goring's army and casualties ensued. Remarkable that they approached one royalist and were armed by him so that they could take action against another royalist. If we briefly look at how clubmen are described in publications, John Adair in his book By the Sword Divided puts pillaging as the reason behind clubmen associations forming in Shropshire, Worcestershire, Herefordshire, Wiltshire, Dorset, Somerset, Berkshire, Sussex, Hampshire and South Wales. Dame C.V. Wedgwood in her book The King's War attributes exactions of the army, taxation, and the foraging and billeting of troops as the catalyst behind the clubmen. Made up, she says, of yeomen and their sons, minor gentry and some clergy. Taylor Downing and Maggie Millman in Civil War state that this third force was tired of the fighting and the cost in lives, crops and money and comprised of all levels of society. Finally, Christopher Hibbert in Cavaliers and Roundheads, which was the first ever book I bought in 1994, he adds another dimension to Clubman by suggesting that some wished to be governed by, quote, gentlemen of worth, 
birth and integrity, and known among us. Between King and Parliament, the side which ultimately began to lose the war would find it ever more increasingly difficult to control their armies. Due to shortages of money, more desperate sentiments, and perhaps a breakdown in communication due to territory losses. It was Parliament who prevailed, and their new model army alleviated much of the clubmen's concerns regarding plunder. The new model army were regularly paid and kept relatively well disciplined. So as we've seen, clubmen existed all across the country and each of their motives were vastly different. Nor were they a unified force, perhaps to the relief of both King and Parliament. They rose, perhaps to defend their homes, to oppose a local commander or his troops, or simply to maintain the balance of power so that one side did not become all too powerful. One of the main reasons for their mustering was to talk, to negotiate and present their grievances about the burden of taxation or supporting the armies of both sides, and even persuade King and Parliament to come to an agreement to end the war. As Hayden said, the big what-if would be if they had been properly armed and had a unified leadership. These forces could have been a game-changing third force in the English Civil War. Who knows what could have happened, if anything could have happened at all. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Cavalier Cast. If you've listened on Apple Podcasts, it would be great if you could leave a review of the episode so far. Coming soon, I'll be looking at King Charles I and Oliver Cromwell, but as family men and fathers, where I'll be joined by two well-known authors. I'll also be speaking to the Royal Armouries about their Civil War collections. So why not keep in touch with me on Twitter at 1642author or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 